Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe, and each week I'm joined by a panel of guests to discuss all things fandom and pop culture, primarily from a female perspective. You'll find everything from fanfic to cosplay to Schitt's Creek to Supernatural and everything in between. So put on your favorite piece of fandom merch, set aside that fanfic that you're writing about your OTP, and sit back and enjoy this week's episode. Hello there. Just a quick correction here for this episode. When we talk about um, Monsters Ball and Halle Berry winning the Oscar, we mistakenly say Adam Brody is the one who gave her the kiss, the unwanted kiss. It was actually Adrian Brody. So apologies to Adam Brody. Thank you. Hello and welcome to It's a Fandom Thing. We're going to continue our celebration of Black History Month with a discussion about the history of representation primarily in film. So this should be a really interesting discussion. Before we get into that, just a couple of quick housekeeping notes. As always, we are taking listener support now for as little as 99 cents a month to $9.99 a month. If you'd like to support the show and also support one Black Lives Matter organization per month, please feel free to click on the link in our show notes or head over to our anchor page and click listener support there. And also, our Redbubble store is live. So if you need a magnet, if you need just a bunch of stickers, a new coffee mug, head on over there and pick up one. And 50% of what we see from that will also go to one Black Lives Matter organization per month. Okay, so I'm going to have my panel introduce themselves and tell me one thing they're into into in pop culture right now. Carla? Hello, I'm Carla. And right now, I've been revisiting um, the entire music catalog of the band Hurt. Um, they are, it's a band that I guess in like the early 2000s, maybe even before that, they were never, I don't, I don't think that they were ever particularly big. They had, I think one real big hit song, um, called Rapture, but their first album is amazing. It's, uh, the, one of the songwriters lists one of his influences as Vivaldi and you can definitely feel like a, uh classical music influence in it but it's 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 rock it's like alternative rock music it's phenomenal they're they're a great band um so that's how i've been spending my very limited drives to like the pharmacy or to like do curbs i pick up for groceries <laughs> 
I have not heard of this band. I'm looking them up right Ooh. now on Spotify because I have not heard of them at all. Because um, when you said Definitely. hurt, I was... Yeah, check them out. One of my favorite songs is False Apart. And I think that's like a solid introduction to, to the music. The song Rapture has very interesting themes running through it. Like it's it's a pretty deep philosophical song. And it can... There are certain elements that might be questionable but it's still worth listening to they're just a magnificent band later stuff i'm not so keen on but just that first album is really solid yeah i'm gonna have to give a listen cool well tiffany hello this is tiffany thanks for having me back and i actually took aaron's recommendation and watched horror noir on shutter and it was excellent. And we will be, uh, at this point in time, have live tweeted Horror Noir, which is the history of Black people in the horror genre. And it has uh, old clips of films that have probably been lost to time. It's got uh, directors and actors that have been a part of the horror genre. Um, Side note, I have a connection to one of the directors that's, uh, that is interviewed during uh, in it, Tina Mabry. She was the uh, final project partner to my best friend <laughs> at USC Film School. So, uh, and I met Tina. She's great, uh, really talented. And uh, so she puts her two cents in. So that's cool. And uh, it's just really, really a, a good, good, good documentary. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, thanks, Erin. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, I, I've watched it a couple times. And then, of course, by the time this airs, I will have watched it a, at least a third time. Um, yeah, it's a really, really good documentary. Um and like I've said, you know, Shudder has a lot of really good docs on there that are really good to check out. And I'm not just saying that because of my ever-lasting love for Shudder. I haven't even mentioned Shudder very much either. So, you know, hey, I've been pretty good about it. But <laughs> but no, it's a really – that's a really, really good documentary. It's very fascinating and interesting. And I love um, how many people they interviewed and talked to and – just the history. It's just, it's really, really cool. Yeah. And this is Aaron. And what I'm into is, and I don't know if anyone else on our panel has ever watched this show, but the new season of The Sinner, which is a USA show, is out now on Netflix. And I didn't realize that until just a day or so ago. And if you don't know what The Sinner is, um, every new season has a different case that the detective played by Bill Pullman is working. And basically, you know who the murderer is first episode. So it starts when you know, and then you find out why that happened. Um, and like the first one was a woman brutally, brutally murdered a guy on a beach in the front of tons of witnesses. And then you learn why she did that. And then the second season was a kid killed his parents. And then you learn why that happened. And this one is a car crash. And in this season is arguably the best Chris of all the Chris's is Chris Messina. And so far it seems like he's playing a really creepy, creepy guy. Yeah. So 
It sounds like Tiffany knows has watched this season. Then you've watched this one. Right. I did, and he is the ultimate creepazoid. <laughs> <laughs> so creepy. You're going to yeah. be like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what are yeah. you doing to me, Christmasina? <laughs> Yeah, I'm only I've only watched the first episode, but he seems creepy. And then I'm I got my own theories about what's going on, and Matt Bomer's in it too. And I'm like wondering what's going on with him because there's a whole part where he's like looking at his hand when he's grilling hamburgers, and it looks like he wants to just touch the grill. And I mean, it's very weird. It's a very dark show, but I like it a lot. I think it's enter- entertaining. I mean, it's also kind of. Um, it kind of really creeps under your skin, I think, a little bit too. But and it's a different character for Bill Pullman too. I will say that it's a little bit darker character for him in some respects, especially the first season. Okay, so let's get into history of representation, history of representation in film. Excuse me. Um, and we're going to start just talking a little bit about old Hollywood. And of course, a lot of times you wouldn't actually see black actors on screen. You would see white actors in blackface which of course is a horrible racist thing that actually still has happened in recent history. This isn't something that only happened back in old Hollywood days. Um, but I just want to get the panel's thoughts on that and then any other early stereotypes for black actors as well. Start with you, Carla. When you talk about, you know, early depictions of black people, they were, first of all, they didn't think that black people could be worth putting on a screen and if they were going to be put on a screen that they would only be used in a certain way so they were just like why bother you know they're not real people we're just gonna have our white actors play them it's no big deal and that's something that even to this day is still a thought that you can play somebody from a different um racial background or culture and just because you've you've read about it or studied about it, that, that it's okay to do it. Um, and it's simply not. Uh, and the extreme was the early days of film t- and television with actors doing blackface or brownface or yellowface or any, any one of the one, uh, any kind of appropriative and racist depiction that they could get their hands on. Um, it's as old as the industry itself. And even before that, because you would have stage shows, you would have the minstrel shows, um, with white actors just putting shoe polish on their face and acting what they thought black was. And there was a lot of participation in this by people who were, um, who hadn't been accepted into the white fold but wanted to be. So you had um, some Jews and some Irish people, I think Italians too at the time, um, wearing the blackface and doing this this awful mimicry um, to gain acceptance with the the other white people. And that's, uh, it's just one of the ways in which socially people who are, uh, white enough passing but not culturally white enough could gain acceptance and uh and it's why now you know there's not this overt hatred for the irish i'm not gonna say 
over hatred for the Jews because there's still a lot of anti-Semitism, um, even though there is a lot of benefiting from being white passing um, for a lot of Jews, which, I, you know, if, if you follow, for example, Copy Spoonie on Twitter, she talks about it a lot. Um, and it's, it's, I am pointing to these examples specifically not to focus on, you know, point fingers and other marginalized people, but just to say that this is how a coveted whiteness is and proximity to whiteness and how uh, little regard there was for, for black people and for black lives. And now it's still out there, but now it's more um, subtle. Sometimes, not always, but it's more subtle. And it's made, uh, I, I've talked about um, in a recent episode about how there's this big push for diversification and for inclusion and representation. But it's, a lot of it, it's, it's just talk. Because they might hire an actor to play like the wise janitor or the sassy black friend or the, you know, somebody in a, um, in a quote unquote help position. Um, and how that's, it, it's just part of serving a white character. And Tiffany. I think it's, um, so those early, those earliest films were so detrimental to uh, the way Black people were seen, the way we are portrayed on screen, the way it, uh, you take something coming out of enslavement where we were already seen as subhuman, and then you throw it on screen for multiple people, multitudes of people to actually see. And it just amplifies that subhumanness that people already had it in the back of their mind. So um, the the blackface, as Carla mentioned, uh, the minstrel shows, which were always uh, always white actors with that, that those blackened uh, shoe polished faces. Uh, had a very stereotypical viewpoint of what they thought were enslaved people and how they're how they acted. Um, I do think that uh, probably op- the the best depiction of this is Birth of a Nation. Um, the and I won't even give credence to the name of the actor that portrays the. Uh, the black man, uh, of course, once again in blackface, with this obsessive uh, desire for this white woman uh, to the point where he tries to assault her and he is gathered up by the Klan and lynched, um, which is what happened in real life. And this was lauded as a, a masterpiece Uh, Woodrow Wilson screened it at the White House Uh, and don't let the the smooth taste fool you, but Woodrow Wilson was an excessive racist, a huge racist, 
And uh, he wrote about how much that, uh, that film was a true depiction of real life and uh, how he believed it was a masterpiece of the highest caliber. Um, so things like that uh, definitely set us back so, so greatly. Um, thinking about um, thinking about the the black owned production companies that were trying to combat that because there were several. The best known was probably Lincoln Motion Picture Company, uh, which put out a lot of they were called race films, but it was about upliftment, not about stereotypical behaviors or anything like that. Um, but Tressie Souter, she was the first black woman to direct a feature film. Uh, Spencer Williams had a very well-regarded, highly regarded film called The Blood of Jesus. Uh, it's considered a masterpiece of early cinema. Uh, Oscar Micheaux, who is probably the best known early black film director, has a slew of, uh, of films from the 1920s and, uh, and 30s also into the 40s, actually. Um, and he had a, a really interesting career because he was, <laughs> he started, I think, as a, as a porter, a Pullman porter. And then he was, uh, he was, um, worked as a book publisher. He, I mean, <laughs> his careers ran the gamut. Uh, and I think so, you have on one side this really harmful trope. And then on the other side, you have Black filmmakers that are trying to combat that trope at the same time. And it took a long time. And it's still, you know, obviously a fight to do that today. But it took a long time for us to make any type of headway in Hollywood. And it's it, it, the struggle continues. It's uh, still a struggle. Yeah, because a lot of those tropes still are around today, really, um, the early tropes. And yeah, I mean, Birth of a Nation is still, you know, taught in film school. And I mean, granted, I think a lot of film schools teach it a lot differently than they did before. But it was taught for years as a masterpiece of filmmaking. Um, and of course, it, it also, when you look at it from a critical eye and look at all the racist stereotypes in there with, with a white woman, especially with the white woman in there. And white women do use their whiteness to their advantage. Um, you know, of course, more white women voted for Trump than didn't. Um, and it, and that, it, you know, white women will vote against, against their own interests in order to keep up that patriarchy and keep up the white supremacy um, because it benefits white women um to have that to be to have the white supremacy still there to still have the racism there and i think that's a big thing that we have yet to really 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 come to terms with in this country and make um any kind of reparations on is the fact that white women have done so much harm as well um we focus a lot on white men and what the harm that white men have done but very rarely focus on the harm that white women have done and how many innocent black men have been killed because of white women and how racism and institutions of racism and everything have how they have hung on because of white women as well so that is a big thing and and if you really look at birth of a nation i mean that's just right there right there in front and center 
um, is that and showing, you know, the white woman um, and using her power um, and getting the black man killed. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, it's always been an issue of people who are also minorities trying to find a way to not be um, the biggest minority in the room, the biggest person persecuted in the room. Um, you find that in the LGBTQ plus community as well. You'll find some, you'll find a lot of racism in that community as well. Um, you'll also find a lot of transphobia in that community as well. Um, and it is that, you know, I, I don't want to be as oppressed as you. So it's, yeah, that's, that's a really, really harmful thing that also doesn't get talked about as much, I don't think. And it all starts with this. It all starts with the harmful tropes you see portrayed. Like Tiffany was saying, if you keep seeing that, if that's what you are exposed to and that's what you see, and if that's what you see starting at a young, young, impressionable age, that's what you will grow up believing is the truth. And that's why it's so harmful. That's why it's still harmful to this day when you have actresses like Scarlett Johansson and Emma Stone playing characters that are not white and they're playing them and they go ahead and do it um, until enough people speak out and then they decide to step back. But they still decided to choose to take that role. That's where the issue starts is they decided, OK, it's OK for me to take this role. Um, and they can't use the excuse and this wouldn't make it right either, but they can't use the excuse of, well, I'm an up and coming actress and I need to take a role because they're not, but they shouldn't say that anyway, but they couldn't even use that excuse. And even though it's good that like, and even though it's good that Scarlett Johansson has dropped out of roles, she still has done roles that are problematic and she still took those roles. So it is, again, it's, it's a problem that still happens today. Um, it happens in subtle ways. It happens in, you know, a lot of people finding, you know, old footage of people like Jimmy Fallon doing blackface and, um, I think Tina Fey and, and 30 Rock, there was, wasn't there in 30 Rock or something with Tina Fey. I swear there was something with Tina Fey. I can't remember what it was. Um, um anybody. Uh, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Oh, really? Oh, they did too. See, I, I, I didn't watch that show, but. Yeah, on that one, they had um, Jane Krakowski playing a woman whose uh, background was that she was, her backstory was that she's um, a Native American and that she decided to, like, dye her hair blonde, put in contact so that she could be white passing, so that she could be, like, this socialite in New York. Wow, I didn't know that. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah, yeah, see, it's just... I mean, and that was just like probably what, like a year ago or something. I can't remember when that. Was it was like, just a few years ago, but like mm -hmm. they defended it up, up and down and left and right. Yeah. Well, I mean, we still have, I mean, look at some of our baseball teams, our football teams. I mean, it's just, it's still there. It's still present. And, you know, it's something that does need to be looked at. And that's why you tear down monuments. Yeah, that's why you tear down statues. That's why you tear those down. Because it's you're not going to forget that history. It doesn't mean you have to have a statue to it. Because statues are for honoring people. Monuments are for honoring people. History books and talking about it in history, that's for actually looking at the history. But when you have a statue for someone, that's basically saying what they did was good. What they did was right. We should look up to them. We should be like them. 
And so you see that enough times and it tells you again and again that racism is okay. That white is better. That white is what you want. Whiteness prevails. So yeah, it's, and it starts with media too. I mean, that is an important thing in this because that's what we consume. That's what we see. Okay, well, I want to move on a little bit to um, Hattie McDaniel, who, of course, um, won the Academy Award for her role as Mammy. That was her character in Gone with the Wind, which, of course, there's also that harmful trope, the Mammy trope. Um, and she won that. And, of course, she really w- she wasn't even allowed to be in the same room. I know she walked up on stage, but she wasn't even allowed to be in the same room. She wasn't allowed to go to some of the premieres of the movie. Um, I know that when it, she wasn't able to ent- attend the premiere in racially segregated Atlanta, and I guess supposedly Clark Gable was outraged by that and he wasn't going to go and then she convinced him to go. Um, there have also been a lot of people that that at this time got upset with her for taking this role in a very racist movie. Because this movie is racist, and I hate this movie. I just want to say, <laughs> I know a lot of people love this movie. I have always hated this movie for for uh, numerous reasons. I think it's a disgusting love story, but it's also very racist too. So I want to talk about that and her win and that character, Carla. I think you know before I even get to the the character, you know, the, the fact that people were upset at her for taking the role, which is a, a very valid thing to be upset about and then looking at how even today we have a lot of actors taking roles that help support stereotypes and that help to further the idea of of just any kind of minority as something other or something less than um i know that there's a lot of of outrage when um uh during the whole Iron Fist TV show, well, like when it was about to premiere, and people were, were saying, "Okay, first of all, Danny Rand should have been should have been Asian because we're talking about a character that is who is uh, trained in Asia, and so it's he be, he's a white savior kind of thing." And you know, like I, I'll get away from the references just to Asian film in a moment, but the reason that I want to bring it here is because a lot of the times the people being oppressed and the being uh, participants in the very things, the very art and media that helps with the oppression. Um, and if you talk to the people who participate in this way, they'll give you all kinds of reasons, like you know, it's just a job. I just needed to kick up my career. I, um, you know, it's 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 still good to have an actual black woman on the screen instead of a white guy in makeup. So you'll you get all kinds of reasons, all kinds of of excuses, but at the end of the day, it's still a harmful. It still serves a harmful representation, and it helps to further um, the marginalization that's already in place. And with Hattie McDaniel, you know, I I just I can't imagine what it would have been like to be her, and to be. Uh, to just want to have a job in the field that she chose that she wanted to be part of and to like the only role that's available available for her is one that positions a black woman as somebody who only lives to serve the white child 
who is, you know, like the, the dainty white lady who is um, the right kind of beautiful, the right kind of uh, of white, the, the proper this and that and the other. So, you know, it, it's it's just really sad that anybody thinks that, that, that this is something that they have to do. That these are the limitations on what their options are. Um, I I don't know. Like I I don't want to be like, oh, poor Heidi McDaniel. She didn't really have a choice because, of course, in the end, she did. She could have turned it down, you know. But there's always somebody who's going to do it. But that doesn't mean that she shouldn't have. We could go on about that in circles all day but the fact remains that there will always be an actor who is willing to take a part like this there's a reason why there are still a lot of movies that portray um arab men as terrorists and you'll have arab men willing to take the part in the show or movie as we see with jack ryan um the john krasinski show um but i think the fact that this particular role was lauded to the point where she was awarded an Oscar for this role kind of sets the stage for what's acceptable and what's uh, what'll get you recognition. What'll get you a job in Hollywood. Um, And I don't think that there's anything that anybody could have done to prevent something, because I, I, I just, I don't even know if they valued her performance specifically, or just the fact that Gone with the Wind was such a big movie that got so many awards. You know, like, would would somebody else have won in, in that role? Entirely possible. So it, it's, it's, it's a very fraught topic, just because there's so many what-ifs, and if she hadn't, and if this and that and the other but the fact is she was an actress who took a role that furthered um stereotyping and black oppression by depiction of a subservient black woman who is willing to give up you know her own personality in, in the service of this white woman there is a um a spike lee joint that is a really good satire of uh, that whole trope of uh, domestics and the uh, the Bojangles characters uh, tap dancing, you know, air quotes, safe Negro. Uh, ban- I don't know if y'all have seen it. It's Bamboozled, where the uh, Savion Glover plays uh, the main character. Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith is in it as well and it's uh, a take on the old menstrual shows but it's a black man taking back the power of the old menstrual show but to the point where he learns that all money is not good money and uh, he gets a lot of internalized depression over the fact that he is now seen as this minstrel even though he was trying to satirize the minstrel, uh, the minstrel history. Um, so Hattie McDaniel 
and I obviously we are not in the head of, of Hattie McDaniel. She's been been long gone at this point in time. And uh, we can't say for certain why she did what she did. It could have been a situation where, hey, a job is a job. I'm an actor. I need to act. Uh, this is my livelihood and I need to make money. Uh, and, and that's that. Or it could have been um, a point where she felt like she could satirize that to the point of at least black people would know this is obviously not how we act, but she's taking agency over it. She's taking control back over it. And I don't think we can, we obviously can't know what was in her, what her thought process was, what she actually thought about it. Um, I mean, I'm sure she has, she mentioned almost how she felt, but would she have been telling, would she have been giving her entire truth of the matter? Um, because I'm sure she wanted, she held some things back because she was still a working actor after Gone with the Wind. Uh, it's not like she didn't, she didn't stop acting after that point. Uh, the sad part about her not being able to uh, sit in the main auditorium at the Oscars, she was literally in another room. And the only person that was in that room with her was her, I think was her agent. Um, and that was, and that was it. So as far as um, her winning an Oscar for that, it's a, uh, it's a really, really, it's a real slap in the face of you're going to shuck and jive and shuffle along and hey, we're going to award you for that. Uh, so I can see why people were, uh, you know, why black people in particular were very upset with her at doing something like that. Um, and I guess it, present day it would be like if a black actor took uh, a crackhead role, because that was you know a huge, huge trope in in the eighties and the, the early nineties, uh, or the um, the the sassy black friend, <laughs> which we've talked about before. We talked about um, the single mother. Before as well, so these characters that are historically been given a a bad rap uh, of sorts. So, um, what is the lasting impact of somebody like Hattie McDaniel? Not sure necessarily. I don't think that it's something that that today's black actors would point to and say, "Hey, you know what? This is a performance that I wish I had given." I re I really don't. Yeah. And I think um, the thing with Gone with the Wind, and of course, recently they were not showing Gone with the Wind, or they pulled got they were pulling Gone with the Wind and weren't going to show it, and were trying to be. Um, and this was during the summer, um, last summer. I it wasn't that with. God, I can't remember the whole thing that happened because I know what ended up happening is all these people started buying. All these white people were like, "Oh my gosh, we're gonna." this is so stupid and ridiculous and started buying um, the DVDs and Blu-rays like crazy. And so like the sales like skyrocketed. So, you know, the impact of having a movie like this be, it's still, I think even if you count for inflation, I believe gone with the wind is the most successful movie ever made financially. I believe it still is even with counting for inflation. I'll have to 
double check that and I'll correct myself later if that's wrong. But um, yeah, I, be- I believe it is. And so you look at that, that it is still a beloved film. It's still a film that people still say is one of the greatest love stories ever told. Um, and yeah, Carla, did you want to add something? I didn't know if you had like info on yeah. what I'd said. <laughs> well, no, no, not info, just um, okay. anecdotal. I was in seventh or eighth grade and I remember our teacher played uh, Gone with the Wind for us as a treat, as a historically relevant film, as, a, as an important cinematic masterpiece. She named her daughter after the estate in the film. So yes, and her daughter went to class, went to school with me, so her daughter was in, in my my class. And, you know, this is a, a teacher that I that I really liked and respected. So when I watched it, I it didn't sit right with me, but I thought that I was the one who just was wrong in my point of view because, well, you know, this teacher that I respect and really like loves this movie so much. What am I missing? You know, like, what am I not taking away from it correctly? And that's... <sighs> It's something that, you know, teachers leave a, leave a huge mark on us. Teachers that we really care about really leave a, an even bigger impact. And the fact that she didn't realize the impact, you know, like to her, through her very white um, viewpoint, this is a magnificent film about the American South and about, you know, it's a great love film and it's, you know, all of these things and we were preteens and early teens and watching this thing um and supposed to be wowed by it and i was like i don't get it i'm i'm really not comfortable with this and i you know there there's there was nobody for me to talk to about why and that i wasn't wrong for being uncomfortable with it until much later like in my 30s really when I had more people in my life who weren't white who were like, oh, no, 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 you're not wrong. <laughs> like, you're not misinterpreting the film. Like, this is how it's going to make you feel because you're right about the the romantic elements being problematic. You're right about um, Mammy being a problematic character. It's not you. It's the film. And I was like, oh, well, that's a relief. And and I and I will admit when I the reason I didn't like it at first was I thought it well I thought it was kind of boring. Um, I also really didn't like the love story because I was like this guy is like he's he's really kind of abusive to her and she's I mean I'm not saying Scarlett is a great woman, but he's really abusive and why is this romantic and why am I supposed to be swooning over this love story? And I didn't until I was older get also the fact that it's really a really racist film. Um, But that goes to show you as a white person that I wasn't thinking that way. I was just seeing this really boring, long, really long film with a really disgusting love story at the center of it that I'm supposed to be swooning over. And granted, I've fallen for really toxic romantic tropes a billion times. 
Um, but yeah, I, I didn't see how racist it was until I got older. And the problem is, is that, you know, people still claim they don't see that. I think a lot of people do see it, but they don't care. And I think the excuse a lot of people give is, oh, well, this is old. It's old. And this stuff doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't matter anymore because this doesn't happen. And this was the past. And we need to talk about the past. And it's fine because we don't actually do this anymore. But that's bullshit. <laughs> that's absolute bullshit. Um, you know, and, and just going to the fact that people were afraid of losing this piece of racist cinema, that they would go out and buy it in droves and that it would make money again, just goes to show you that people just don't want to lose something that they treasure for many different reasons. But I think a big part of it is people don't want to lose they people don't what what it is sorry is that people don't want to look in the mirror and see that they may have contributed in some way to racism they don't want to look in the mirror and see that they embrace racism in some way and that's the biggest problem i think one of the biggest problems today is that people don't want to actually look at themselves and see, okay, what have I done in my life that is racist? What am I doing that's racist? What does my neighbor do that's racist that I haven't told them about or called them out on? What does my mom, my brother, my whatever, you just go down the list. And I think this plays into that because it was like, oh my gosh, someone's calling a film that I love racist. Well, I don't want to look at that because I'm not racist. I'm not racist. I can't be racist. And so I think I think that's another big part that plays into it is people don't like that. They don't like, you know, it's the white fragility. It's the total white fragility just in their face, um, you know, and it's it's something that we need to look at. I'm talking about white people here. What we need to look at is that white fragility within ourselves, because I know I I. I know there's stuff that I need to improve. I know there's stuff I need to still work on. I know there's stuff I've done in the past that isn't the best. I know there's probably stuff that I don't even remember that I've done or microaggressions that I wasn't even aware I was doing. And it's stuff that we need to acknowledge and recognize. And when it's called out, not be a Karen and not be defensive and actually really look at it. So, yeah. <laughs> Just Tiffany and Carla laughing right now. <laughs> you're not a Karen. You're our Aaron. <laughs> That's a good one. Thank you. <laughs> that was pretty good. Okay, well, let's go on now to Sydney Poitier, and I just and I want to talk about just. I want to talk about him in general, his film roles, winning an Oscar. And of course, um, he had the first interracial kiss on cinema in the U.S. Not the first one, but the first one that aired in the U.S. So I want to talk about that, Carla. I want to talk about him, Carla. I just, I, I love his acting. I, I think his acting is, he just, he's one of these actors who has such an amazing presence. Um, whenever he's on screen, I, I, I just... I get lost in what he's doing. Um, that said, he's been certainly in, in some movies that you're just like, eh, eh I'm not sure. Uh, that makes me feel comfy. I'm kind of 
freaking out right now and I'm going to turn it off because I don't want to watch it. But in all of his illustrious film credits and in his long career, and, you know, you have Porgy and Bess and you have, um, uh, I guess was coming to dinner, Heat of the Night, To Serve With Love. The movie that stands out the most in my mind is Sneakers. And that's, you know, that's in in the genre of old people doing cool things, like old people as action stars, which I totally dig. Um, It's why I love the movie Red. And it's why, even though it's one of the worst movies ever, I love The Expendables so much. But Sneakers is the grandfather, haha, of these kinds of, of movies, I think. Um, and thank you, Tiffany, for the drum roll. Um, you have, it's a great cast. It's a fun movie. Um, it's the cast is led by Robert Redford. So you have Robert Redford, Redford. Okay. See, like, this is me trying to get out words with R's in them, which is so hard for me. I'm like, Robert Redford. Rob, We'll, we'll call him Rob. Rob the Red. Rob the Red and Sidney Poitier um, are my favorites in, in this entire movie. It's it's a great cast and they're fantastic in it. He's fantastic in it. But I think like another sentimental favorite is To Serve With Love. Because that, that's, first of all, it's one of the first movies that I saw him in. And I know that there was a sequel, but I'm going to go ahead and ignore that because as far as I'm concerned, it didn't happen. Um, but I really, I, I, I really did love it and you know it's it's one of those teacher tropes where he comes in and like they're troublemakers and so he has to be the the teacher who brings them around and and then the teachers the teachers the students fall in love with him and they're like oh and he's the best teacher ever and then there's the girl who like is kind of like hey teacher and you're like ew that's really gross but it's still a, a great performance. I, I just, I really like it. And of course, you, you had the, the song that came with it, Lulu's To Serve With Love. To serve with love. It's a, it's a good song. I don't care what you say, it's a good song. But his career is really made on his charisma, I think. I mean, he's certainly talented. He is for sure a very talented man. But he's also very charismatic, very engaging, um, very handsome. Um, and like I said, you know, he, he has like this long career with all kinds of different movies in it. You, you have everything from the serious to ghost dad, which, um, I'm not ashamed to say, like, I love that movie. I am only here to say good things about it because I thought it was a great family fun film. I don't care what anybody says. Um, but you know, to focus on Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, that movie was, it's another one of those movies that is just really cemented in my mind. There's so much about it that, you know, I, I, I'm the daughter of, of an interracial marriage. I'm in an interracial marriage. Um, and watching this movie, from my point of view, made me feel better because it's um like my father's family wasn't all that interested in him marrying a mexican woman so in in my personal life story like 
it's it's a different kind of non-acceptance and it certainly wasn't there there are like no white people involved in my personal story and there's no nobody in a position of um societal power in my story but just the fact that you have people who are in an interracial relation, relationship openly being allowed to express their love for each other in a setting like this where um Sydney's character, Mr. Poitier's character, excuse me. Um, he's 93. He gets his his due, you know, sir. He lives in Miami, by the way. Just wanted to throw that out there. Don't stalk him. That's not why I said it. Um, but he he's in a in a unenviable position of showing up to this white woman's family's home and kind of trying to make the case of that he deserves to have a seat at the table with the woman that he loves. And it's, you know, when you contrast that role with Get Out, where you also have a black man showing up to the home of a white woman, and then it goes in a complete nightmare road. But Sidney Poitier's character also has a living nightmare and having to defend the validity of his existence. And that's something that should never have to happen but it certainly did, and it still does to this day, um, have very real, um, it's still very relevant, unfortunately. But the, the things that, that stick with me about Guess Who's Coming to Dinner are that when the movie was still out, Martin Luther King was assassinated while the movie was in theaters. It was still running. Um, and the decision of uh, Loving versus Virginia in which uh, the laws against miscegenation, which is, you know, interracial coupling with, you know, with white people, basically, uh, were deemed unconstitutional. So you have these huge landmark uh, events in Black American history going on as the background for this movie being released. And in fact, there's a a line in the movie that says that, uh, you know, John, you're breaking the law in 17 states by being with this white woman. And by the time that the movie was already out, that was no longer the case because, like, during all of this, it was declared constitutional. So, uh, and at the center of it, you have Sidney Poitier, who is the black man in the movie. He is the focal point of the movie. And it wasn't supposed to be that way because you have Catherine Hepburn. It's supposed to be a Catherine Hepburn movie and um, Spencer Tracy. But the one who really stands out, and I don't know if it's just for me, because again, it was very relevant to my life. But that's just how I saw it. I saw it as a Sidney Poitier film because of that. So I feel like Sidney Poitier was an extension of Paul Robeson early in his career. Um, Paul Robeson was known for these very, he was Shakespearean trained, very elegant roles, um, very powerful speaking roles, that sort of thing, but on the bit of the safer side. And Poitier's earlier, excuse me, because he is 93, Mr. Poitier's early career has that sort of a safe feel with the exception of A Raisin in the Sun. And A Raisin in the Sun 
is the exception to all of those because it's written by a black lesbian woman. Lorraine Hansberry was was a lesbian, in case you didn't know that. Uh, also, she died very young as well. Uh, she had cancer, I believe. Um, so with that exception of A Raisin in the Sun, really safe kind of roles. Uh, the Oscar he won was for Lilies of the Field, in which he plays... Uh, it, it skirts the... It skirts that edge of magical Negro trope. Um, he, the the sisters, the Catholic nuns, feel like he's sent from God to help them build this chapel, right? Okay, can you get any more magical than that? Is you think somebody is actually heaven sent uh, to help you uh, with this building project? I mean, hello, just hire some people, hire some contractors to build your church and call it a day. Um, but his his roles get progressively more uh, controversial as he goes along. Um, guess who's coming to dinner? Obviously, you get that interracial kiss, which was, you know, I'm, they didn't even show it in the South because, God forbid, you show a black man kissing a white woman. And no, the, exactly, Carla, fainting couches everywhere. <clears throat> um, and then you get to which is my personal favorite in the heat of the night. And that iconic line where they keep calling him, you know, they've called him boy. They call him son. They haven't respected his name. And he yells out, they, it's a bellow. They call me Mr. Tibbs. That can you get any more powerful than that? Than this, this black man who happens to be a detective from Philadelphia telling this racist white sheriff, this is what, this is my name. This is what you're going to call me, period. I will brook no other name besides that. It's, you know, either Detective Tibbs or Mr. Tibbs, period. There's also, in case you, you haven't um, really recalled the film, he slaps the mess out of this white man <laughs> too. <laughs> Because that man used the, made the mistake of calling Mr. Tibbs, you know, Detective Tibbs, the N-word. And as soon as it, I mean, he barely got the word out. And I mean, it was like, it was a telenovela slap. <laughs> the telenovelas would be proud of that slap. The man's head like literally recoiled. Um, so he gets to these, and, and of course, to serve with love. Uh, the teacher who is, and and that's that's still um, a bit of an edgier role for him because he is talking very strongly to white students. And how often did you see a black teacher teaching a really majority white, even though it's working class London, teaching a white class? You would rarely see that. Um, if you saw it at all, you definitely didn't see it on screen. So I think he has, um, he's had a very varied career. Uh, Carla obviously mentioned Ghost Dad, which yes, I still like it. <laughs> I still like Ghost Dad. I don't think I've ever seen sneakers. So maybe I'll have to, <laughs> maybe Carla's saying yes, she's nodding her head very vigorously. So I guess I'll have to watch sneakers. Um, 
his his career is so uh, it's so long. His credits are so they're very deep. So I definitely recommend that. He was in that sweet spot from about 1961 to like 68. He was, I mean, he was cranking them out like left and right. But my my favorites of his are In the Heat of the Night and A Raisin in the Sun because those are just two phenomenal performances, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. In In the Heat of the Night. I mean, to be able to to have that happen, to have a black man um, speaking and saying, "You are going to call me by my name. You are not going to disrespect me," and then having a black man slap a white man. Um, that's pretty. Um, I mean, yeah, especially that it would happen and it wouldn't be like, oh, we're going to paint the black man as the villain now or something's going to happen to him or that was the wrong thing to do. But the fact that it was done in a, in a, I don't want to say heroic, but in a way where it was justified and where he, I mean, it would, I'm not saying that it wouldn't have been justified in other, but where it was justified and it was embraced and it was powerful and he was allowed to do that and, and, and people didn't say, no, we're not going to show that. We're not going to have that happen. That's pretty amazing. Um, given the time period, I think even in today's time period, it would also be amazing still to see that is amazing. And yeah, I think that's, that's a great one. And I have a funny sneaker story because we went and saw sneakers. It was, I never like seeing movies in the theater on like holidays on like Christmas or anything like that. It's this weird thing where I feel just bad because people have to work and I'm, and I feel bad that they have to work there. And I've always felt that way, even though I'm the a huge film geek and I miss theaters so much, but that was, and one this of the is few... why you're not a Karen. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> um, but I did one time on a holiday, we went and we saw sneakers and that was the movie <laughs> saw so now every time i i have a warm memory of the movie because of the fact that it was like this family outing and we just kind of had fun after we had a good day and it was just a fun little movie to see and of course there's also the late great river phoenix in the movie as well so just want to mention that but yeah yeah he's a legend and i didn't know he was in miami but you know now now i do so <laughs> Carla's like, I never do not stalk him. I won't, won't, but it's (laughs) it's like how I hang on to the fact that Don Cheadle is from Denver. And I'm like, see, see, we're only a couple of degrees away. And your birthday twin. Let's not forget. Exactly. See, see, you have to find those things where you can get (laughs) connections to the people you admire. Um, But yeah, he's, he's a legend. And yes, I think. His career may have started with some of those stereotypical and problematic roles, but he grew out of that. And and um, I think it was brave at that time to be like, no, I'm going to keep I'm going to play other roles and I'm not going to just stick to stereotypes and I'm not just going to be the safe black actor for white America to consume. Um, I'm going to push boundaries and I'm going to do what I want to do as an artist. And he is just an amazing, amazing actor. I mean, he's so, so talented. Just one of those that's a legend that, you know, we've talked about quite a few of legends lately, and he's definitely one of them, and definitely another one where you see the whole performance in the eyes, the body, the way he holds himself, everything. It's all there. Um, so, yeah, definitely an actor that actors study. Um, 
that actors will always study, continue to study for everything he has done. So yeah, he's 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 incredible. Just an incredible actor with an incredible f- filmography. I mean, <laughs> I was just looking at some of it just to see some ones that I'm like, wow, it's incredible. The last one was like in 2001, but I I mean, it's just it's amazing. Yeah, some um a TV movie the last brick maker in America, which I wasn't familiar with, but that was the last credit that's on IMDb at least. But yeah, that's, I mean, that's 55 film credits. So pretty, pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah. And uh, nine credits as a director. Um, yeah. So just, sorry. I'm just like <laughs> looking at his IMDb right now, just a little bit. You know, you kind of forget sometimes with some actors, you're like, oh, yeah, they've been around that long and they're still working and they're still doing that. And they've done so many different kind of things. Um, and I'm ashamed to say I have never seen Ghost Dad, so I cannot weigh in on Ghost Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should have watched that in preparation. <laughs> yeah, I will have to rectify that, apparently. <laughs> apparently, that's the must-see. You know, maybe we should just do a live tweet of Ghost Town. <laughs> I'm I'm kidding. We're not gonna really do that. <laughs> okay, well I wanna move on. I wanna briefly touch on Night of the Living Dead, which we talked about when we did our zombies and pandemic episode, which Tiffany was also on that one as well. Um, but I wanna touch on that one just because um this is very relevant, I think, to our discussion because, of course, you have a black man in the lead playing the hero in a horror movie um, in a role that wasn't initially written for a black man. It's just Dwayne Jones went in, gave an audition, and George Romero's like, that's who I have to have. And there are some elements in this role, like the fact that he slaps a black woman. I'm a black woman. I'm sorry. That he slaps a white woman in the movie. And so to have a black man slap a white woman... He even said that's really probably we shouldn't put it in there. And George Romero stuck to his guns. And he has since said that he shouldn't have done that. Um, but I want to talk about that role briefly and just what impact that had, especially with horror in general. Um, Carla? I'll be very brief. And you'll be very glad to hear that. Because I I haven't watched this in like a bazillion, bazillion, willian, gajillion years. Um, but... Any time that I've ever seen a black person in a role, in a leading role, in a movie, especially like even 10, 15 years ago, I was always just like, oh my gosh, that is so cool. Simply because they were there. And that's how low the bar was. That, you know, like, it's a black person in a movie. Oh my God, what? This is so neat. I have to celebrate. But this really was worth celebrating because he he's playing the hero. He's the lead. George Romero decided this is the right guy for this role. I don't care how it was written. This is who we're going with, period. Stuck to that. And I, I, I'm, I'm very glad that he did because it, it's, it's not as common as it should be that... Um, when uh, people talk about, um, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm I'm colorblind. I'm just looking for the right person for the part. It's almost never true. They're looking for the right white person for the part. And, yeah, they'll audition one or two non-whites just for the sake of compliance. 
or or whatever for the illusion of a search for diversity. But nine times out of ten, they're going to go with the white guy. And George Romero didn't, and it was great. And I I have read about about um, Dwayne Jones saying initially because he he gave it a lot of thought and he said, look, this is not gonna you know this I'm not comfortable with this. They went ahead with it, and I I'm I'm glad that. George Romero said, yeah, we shouldn't have done that. But he really should have thought that back when Dwayne Jones was saying that. And that's, um, it's a real shame that that he didn't trust his actor in that very important moment. Um, but yes, that is the limit of my remembering things about this particular movie, that there's a guy who reminds me of my dad. And that for me is like the barometer when it comes to to seeing representation in 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 film, which is a very small, small barometer, very limited, and, and I acknowledge that, but it's a visceral thing. It's not something that I can necessarily, you know, like it's just the the that uh, shudder in my stomach, that happy moment that I have in my heart when I see somebody. I'm like, oh, that looks like my dad. That looks like my grandma. That looks like my cousin, my uncle. It looks like me, like which is much more rare. But just having that moment. It's very important to me. I loved in Horror Noir, uh, where they did that deep dive into um, Night of the Living Dead. And they said that when George Romero was shopping it around, uh, he threw it in the back of his trunk and was heading to New York City. And while he was heading to New York City, they announced that Dr. King had been assassinated. And it's so... It's such a harsh split view of what we had in Dwayne Jones and his character being a leader, being exceptionally competent at what at keeping people alive, at keeping himself alive, and then being assassinated at the very end. And then obviously Dr. King being a leader, being exceptionally uh, brilliant, and then being assassinated. Um, it's like almost a, it's a really, really uh, eerie coincidence when you think about it. Because I mean, obviously the mirror, the, the movie was in the can. So it wasn't like Jordan Romero was, was trying to mirror real life. It was already done, completed, finished. And then that happened. Um, it's, it's a really hard ending. It's um, it's an important film, obviously. It's an important film, and uh, it it did a lot to show what a what a black actor can do when given the opportunity, which I think is important. Opportunities are important. We've talked about representation behind the camera uh, and in front of the camera as well, but um, you have to be a good ally. And in order to be a good ally, you have to extend uh, the opportunity to the the most marginalized of us. Um, it's still something that I think it would not be palatable to, especially Black audiences today. Uh, you know, it's it's a uh, we talked about this also how Jordan Peele had uh, initially 
in that first draft of uh, Get Out, or probably not even the first draft, he filmed uh, one of the endings where Chris gets arrested. And, you know, somebody else, once again, on Horror Noir said, you know, that would have been like the good that happened. They said more than likely he would have been shot and killed. And the screening did not go over well with Black audience members, so Jordan Peele changed it, so he's saved uh, by his buddy instead, which, hooray, (laughs) because that would have been a really hard watch after all of the trauma that he goes through in that. that. And it's the same way with, with Night of the Living Dead. That's a lot of trauma in that movie, and he's got to be, and Dwayne Jones has to be uh, not just a leader, but he has to keep himself together at the same time. And then to not be rewarded for that at the very end. And Aaron's mentioned it before, how fast that ending is, how quickly it happens. It's, it's like a split second and bam, he's gone. It's, a, it's really, really um, a, a harsh, harsh rewatch of that. Yeah, because it's it's I mean, he's the smartest person in the film. Um, he um, knows exactly what to do. Um, he's the one you want to have on your team if you're going to try and survive a zombie apocalypse is his character. Um, and then once again, um, human beings, the alive human beings are always the most terrifying part of any zombie movie. And this again shows that because the most terrifying part of this movie is not anything that has to do with the zombies. It's right after they assassinate him. And then you see the fire and, you know, his body's on that fire. And, and that is so hard and painful to watch because it's, it's just, you know, there's no music, no score, just that sound. And it's just like, I I can't imagine what that would have been like to see on screen back then to see the whole thing from beginning to end. But that, that part, and just, I mean, I can imagine people would have been motionless and dumbfounded and just like horrified and all those things. Um, and it is, it is a masterpiece of cinema. It's a masterpiece of horror. Um, it is, um, it is wonderful that George Romero said, okay, you're the best actor and actually stuck with that instead of being like, okay, well, you are the best actor, but I'm not going to, but who cares? I'm still going to cast a white actor to be a truck driver. Um, and that's what originally what was in the script was that it was going to be a white man who was a truck driver kind of thing. And so he decided not to do that. Um, and he has said you know he wishes he could speak to Dwayne Jones who is no longer alive but wishes he could speak to him and see how he felt about that about the fact that you know George Romero didn't look listen to him and he's like I should have listened to him more because it wasn't just the slap that he had an issue with he's like you know I'm it's a very I'm come off as angry a lot and we might want to tone that down some and they thought they were pushing the envelope by having him do this stuff by having his character do this stuff so instead they just kind of shut out 
the black man, which they should have been listening to the black actor who lives that life and knows that life and knows that character better than the white people behind the scenes. So that was another thing. But at least I will say, I mean, I, I think it's good that George Romero now sees the error in that way in his thinking. Um, it's too bad he couldn't see it back then. Like you said, Carla, he should have seen it back then. Um, but I think people should listen to that, listen to that and think, okay, you need to listen to your actors. If you're a white person and you're casting a black actor in a role and they go, this is really problematic. We shouldn't do this. You should listen to them and really, really listen because you're a white person. And you don't know because you're not living that life. Um, and the same goes for any representation anywhere is you should listen to people that are in that community if they are telling you that something is problematic, sit down and listen to them and find out why and then make changes because that's how you improve things and change things. Okay, so we're going to jump forward more to present day. Um, otherwise, we'll be here forever. Because um, <laughs> I do, well, actually, no, I want to touch on black exploitation. Sorry, I want to touch on black exploitation. So, Carla, what are your thoughts on black exploitation films? I think this was like such a weird time in Hollywood, a weird time in cinema where, you know, it's the idea of, well, we're, we're going to have more black films, but we're going to do it in a way that satisfies white Hollywood pockets because they, they found that, oh my gosh, black people watch movies. If black people are in them, who would have thunk? And yes, there are, movies that are that have um black people behind the scenes but at the same time it's like who's bankrolling them who is um distributing them etc and the depictions that they chose are the ones where you know it's the black person is resisting arrest or the black person is super fly you know can you dig it i'm sorry but i'm just like I, all i can think of is He's a bad mother. Shut your mouth. Just talking about Shaft. I, I can't help but say it. I'm sorry. But like, if we're going to talk about black exploitation, I absolutely must say the Shaft line. You can't not. Um, and it's, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very predatory and it's very self-serving because the only population that it really serves is the white people who are going to be taking money home at the end of the day. They're greenlighting movies and uh, distributing movies that serves their vision of what black people are allowed to to look like on a screen um, and that's that's true throughout the history of a film um, that if it serves the uh, the oppressor then it's okay to display it if it shows a vision of of people who um, who go against this ingrained idea of, of what a minority is supposed to be, then it's like, well, that's really risky. You know, like, oh, we can't really go there. And sometimes it's because they actually think that it's a risky move and that, you know, audiences won't, won't buy that. And sometimes it's just, you know, they, they can't take a chance on uh, letting their their boot off somebody's neck. And that's what it comes down to, that, well, you know, we can't have people thinking good things about themselves. We can't have people thinking that black people can be good and uh, have lives that are worth living just by existing. You know, it, it's if we don't show them continually as 
um, as enslaved and as uh, the bad guy, then they're going to get this idea that their lives matter. And that's all part of this, uh, this genre. And it's really, you know, it, it's, I, I'm, t- I'm, you know, it goes beyond the black exploitation era because I think in a lot of ways it continues, but in a more sophisticated quote unquote way where black characters are being invited into white film spaces but still to play a caricature and to play uh, the role that they're allowed to play in the black exploitation era. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes sense to me, so we'll just go with that. But it's uh, it's just really disgusting that that's all that there is. And not to say that there isn't some merit to some of the movies, because a lot of great characters came from that, but of that from that era. But when that's all you're presenting. That's a problem. Yeah. Tiffany? I don't know if you've all seen um, Dolomite Is My Name with Eddie Murphy. Great, great film if you've never seen it. Um, It's the story of how the movie Dolomite, which came out in 75, was made. And the creator was Rudy Ray Moore. And he, it was a send up of the the pimps that he knew uh, from back in the day and uh, some exaggerated behaviors that he had observed. And I found it interesting because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a exploitation movie of a black exploitation movie. <laughs> this is like Inception, right? <laughs> um, so... Rudy Ray Moore, I mean, this is basically how this film was getting made, how he had to go through, I mean, he had to jump through hoops to get this thing made, um, making deals with kind of shady businessmen and shady production companies. But I found it interesting that he did have a lot of um, Black folks behind the scenes in order to get it made. He was doing uh, he had black writers, he had a uh, black crew on there. So it, uh, it was a good, um, viewpoint of how at times black exploitation movies were employing a lot of black people. Um, on the other side, as Carla mentioned, this was something that offered oftentimes the truth tropiest of tropes. Uh, you had the the very sexy vixen in Pam Greer. You had somebody like Dolomite, who was the pimp. Uh, probably the one that, that kind of bucked the system was something like Shaft, which is technically still black exploitation, but at least it's about, I mean, it's a private, he's a private investigator, private detective. Um, he has a lot more um, range, I think, in what he does. He's not just out there doing that. Uh, he's not just out there hustling. <laughs> so he has um, like gainful employment, I guess you could say, uh, which <laughs> some of the others have dubious employment. <laughs> um, so it, it, 
it's a it's six in one half dozen in another. On one hand, it created a lot of a lot of jobs, a lot of opportunity. And on the other hand, it gives you this very narrow view of black life during that time, because black life wasn't just I'm a, a sassy black woman who kicks butt or I'm a, a pimp who keeps my hose in check. Excuse my language. Um, <laughs> so that's not just the two people that that, that black people are. Um, there are there's there are doctors, there are lawyers, there are postal workers, and um, and chefs, and everybody in between that. And black exploitation didn't necessarily show all of that. It it had this very very slim view of black Americana, and um, I think at times it was extremely harmful. Because it wasn't just black people, obviously, that were going to see these movies. It was also white people as well and, and other folks. So, Yeah, and I think they still, some of the, the, the harmful tropes from it still last to today. And people still think about them today. And then, um, and I always also think about, um, remember that movie, I'm Gonna Get You, Sucker? Remember that? <laughs> One of my favorites. I love it. Yeah, I just, I just remember that that movie. I used to. I used to own that one on, well, I didn't own it. It was one of those ones that I had the stacks of recorded off of cable. (laughs) (laughs) Movies on the VHS. I actually kind of miss those. Carla, you want to say something? (laughs) Yeah, I just want to quickly mention the movie Undercover Brother. Because that's another one of those where, you know, like reclaiming the black exploitation trope. And it's, you know, modern-ish because it's in the time that I was alive. So, <laughs> but I love that movie, and I think it's 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 a hilarious movie. It stars Eddie and um, oh my gosh, I've gone Go blank. Ahead, <laughs> Eddie Griffith. Thank you. Yes, <laughs> and um, Chris Kattan is in it as the the bad guy. It's hilarious, and you have all of these send ups of the trope of what the pimp is, and you end up just like really falling in love with. With Eddie Griffith's character, I think it's a solid movie. It's I, I think it's hilarious. But yeah, it, it really does try to kind of come back and, and send this uh, this trope and this uh exploitation genre up. And I think it, it I think it's pretty successful because it just calls out like all of the ridiculousness of it. I mean it, it, he he had those um goldfish platform shoes. Mm-hmm. Well, like the, the platform is in, and it's an aquarium. I just ugh, just needed to say it. <laughs> Tiffany. Um, Anjali Ellis is also in it. She plays Sister Girl, and uh, it's the, they all work for the Brotherhood. It's an amazing movie. I'm sorry, it's cinematic <laughs> genius. Amazing. I watch, <laughs> I watch it anytime it's on because it is just hilarity. He's got a he's got a seventy six Cadillac <laughs> sedan to build. This thing is as big as a boat, and I know why because my father has one in his garage right now. That was <laughs> that was my grandfather. So <laughs> and he just he's got an eight track. <laughs> he's, he's he's just um, he is he is uh, he embraces like everything that's fun and funky 
about black exploitation, but he just does it in a um, in a really non harmful way. It's like, yeah, he's cool, he's funny, but he's also like a really good spy. He he can he does infiltration. He is uh, he's a pretty good fighter, uh, and then he really likes Sister Girl, which I which I love because. Anjanu Ellis is, is outstanding. So <laughs> he has one line where he says, um, what you don't like my, uh, she's like big hair, big car. She's like, are you trying to uh, to compensate? He's like, you forgot my big fuzzy balls. <laughs> she looks horrified, but he's got like fuzzy dice balls <laughs> hanging from, his, from, the winch, uh, from the rear view mirror. It's hilarious. Uh, this is this has been a um, advertisement for Undercover Brother. If you're wondering, <laughs> a promotion for it. Yeah, <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, and Dolomite is my name is a really really good movie. Yeah, yeah. Eddie Murphy is so good in that movie. Oh my gosh, so good, so good. Um. Yeah. Well, because of time, we're just gonna go ahead here. <laughs> I had a feeling this was going to, I'm like, Aaron, you're writing this outline as like 10 pages long. So we're going to go ahead and move on. We'll skip ahead to when Halle Berry won the Oscar for Monsters Ball, which Monster is one of those words that I know I don't always say right. So excuse me. Um, <laughs> but I want to just talk about that really quickly and then talk about kind of segue right into the fact that that plays into some harmful tropes that are still around today. And then I want to end just talking about some big positives like Moonlight and other amazing directors and stuff. Um, so, Carla, what are your thoughts on when Halle Berry won? I hated that moment so much because it's rewarding yet another example of a, of a Black person playing the, le- the least... Uh... <sighs> just playing an awful role in an awful movie and it's uh it's a very racist film and it's a very um the character she plays is frankly pathetic without the the actual pathos that you that you that would make her performance compelling um I, I can't say enough how much I hated this film. I hated the film. I hated that she was nominated in this role. I hated that she won for that role when there are just so many amazing performances by by Black women even that year or even before that that could and should have been rewarded. There was absolutely no reason why that movie had to be um, rewarded except for the fact that she was playing a character that was acceptable to white people, uh, which is a, a black woman who is suffering. And that's really all that that I can say about that. It's typical Hollywood rewarding what they think black people should be allowed to play. Hate the movie. Hate the character. Hate the fact that she won. Uh, Halle Berry is a pretty talented actor. Uh, she has some really good film credits up under her belt. Uh, her uh, becoming Dorothy Dandridge was excellent. And I think if you want to see a really great uh, example of her acting ability, that's one that you should that you should really look at. 
this was nothing but gratuitous nudity, uh, gratuitous uh, sexual exploitation. Um, the fact that she is the one who is, it's not magical Negro, but it's, it's Negro saviorhood because she's the one who's supposed to change this exceptionally racist character in uh, Billy Bob Thornton. And it's just gross. It is so gross. And my mother had the, we saw it at, at separate times, but her view was that she was rewarded for that very lurid sex scene. And it is, it is over the top, even for even for Hollywood. It comes to like softcore porn. If you've never seen it, it was extremely uncomfortable to watch. It's still like I'm thinking about it and it grosses me out. Like it's making me gag right now, seriously. Um, and I recognize the importance of a black actor actually winning an a lead actor um, award. Uh, lead actor Oscar, but I really just wish it hadn't have been for that. I honestly wish it hadn't have been because uh, Angela Bastin and What's Love Got to Do it was right there, 1993. <laughs> it was right there. She should have been the first. <laughs> yeah, Carla. I also just want to throw in there the memory of Adam uh, Brody grabbing. Halle Berry and just planting a kiss on her just because he could which it, this was at the Oscars and he's like oh, I just had to I'm like you really didn't and that was disgusting and how dare you and people just laughed it off like it was nothing when you're using a woman's body a black woman's body I it's just it, but it, it's part and parcel of the whole thing the rewarding this performance because of the sexual element of it, like Tiff said. And then you go and have this man just go and grab her and, and just plant a kiss on her. It's disgusting. Yeah, the way um, Halle Berry is, was treated in this movie, um, it's very, um, it's exploitation. It's using this beautiful actress and using her body and using her to get everybody else off. Um, and it probably was the case when they filmed it. I don't know. I don't know what that set looked like. I think what happened to her after she won the Oscar and the way she was treated after she won the Oscar, you know, a lot of people like, make fun of her and say she's not a talented actress. And that was just, and it was a fluke that she won this award and blah, blah, blah. I think a lot of it is, is that people didn't want to give her roles, didn't want to give her good roles after that. Um, They kind of just went, okay, we used you for this moment of pleasure for us. And now we're done with you. So we're going to throw you away. And I don't, and so that's why it's really angering when people say she's not a talented actress or she didn't she doesn't deserve any critical acclaim for anything or see look all these horrible movies that she makes now this just proves that she just isn't a good actress so it's like okay we're going to reward you for this really horrible stereotypical role where I, and I don't want to speak for her cuz I don't know but I can't imagine 
how comfortable it would have been filming that. I mean, I don't know. That might have, who knows? Maybe they were great to her on the set. I don't know. But it might have been a really hard experience for her. And then, of course, getting that unwelcome kiss when she wins the award was absolutely disgusting. And just another another thing of, well, we can do whatever we want to with your body. And now we've rewarded you for this. So now you go sit in the corner and you don't get to do anything else at all that you might want to do. Um, or you'll be relegated to certain roles or we'll let you come out and play every once in a while. But we've gotten our fill of you. And it's really rather disgusting it's racist it's sexist it's everything i mean it's just disgusting and i i don't fault her at all for any of it anything i mean i i don't personally i don't know if carla and tiffany have a different viewpoint on that but i don't fault her i feel bad for her um i feel bad for the way she's been treated since then i feel bad for the fact that that kiss was has become a punchline on the Academy of stage I'm talking about. Um, I feel bad that I haven't heard anybody who was on that set or in that movie with her, like Billy Bob Thornton saying, you know, maybe we shouldn't have done this this way. Maybe we shouldn't have treated this character this way. Maybe this was a bad stereotype, maybe blah, blah, blah. I mean, at least not that I'm aware of. I haven't heard anything about that. Yeah. And you still hear people applauding this. So it's not like people are not applauding this role anymore. It's still applauded. Um, it's still looked at as a great role and a great movie. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's very problematic on very many on a lot of different levels. Okay, so let's talk briefly about the continuing white savior trope that we've still seen a lot of movies that still rewarded all the way to you know Green Book very recently. Um, and, of course, The Help, which Tiffany and I talked about a little bit when we talked about Viola Davis. Um, but I want to talk about this trope and why it is so harmful and how it just needs to stop. Carla? It just will not die. It's like a cockroach, you know, like you think you got it and it's still moving its legs. Um, but what what's really disgusting about it is the centering of white people and black stories where you think, Oh my gosh, we're going to get finally a story about, about a black character and, you know, their life and whatever. And inevitably, well, not always, but inevitably, almost always there's a white person who comes and fixes everything and makes everything better, whether it be with money or by shouting at other white people, no, you will not be racist to my son. Let him, Play the blind side. I'm just talking about just that Sandra Bullock movie. Um, but it's it just centering the white person constantly, constantly, constantly. And these are roles that these white actors accept thinking that they're doing some good to humanity. And that by participating in this, that they're elevating black actors and black stories. And that's just... It's not true. It, it, it's a it's a nice lie that they tell themselves to make themselves feel better um, because they just can't fathom a universe in which black people succeed or are the heroes without their help. And that's that's true. You know, it, it's it's true in real life, too, where you have so many times that um, a white person will center themselves in a black movement. Um, or, or they won't give up the stage to the person who's actually 
part of the group that is being oppressed. Um, and, you know, I don't see any signs of it really stopping, although there is more buzz about, you know, people are using the right buzzwords and they're saying, you know, decenter and, you know, um, sit and listen. And um, I want to lift up and I want to do this. Okay. It's great that you know the Twitter terminology for seeming like you know what you're talking about, but what are you actually doing? And um, at the end of the day, how far are you willing to push back or how far are you willing to endanger your career for the sake of Black people, particularly Black women? And the answer is often not that far. They'll say all the pretty words, but when it comes down to it, they'll be like, you know, I did what I could. I talked to, like, I used all of my connections and I just did my best and it still ended up not working out the way that, oh, sorry, sorry, sis, we'll try harder next time. And um, I, I certainly hope that it changes because I think uh, I especially see a lot of these buzzwords and a lot of this talk from white women. And unfortunately, the refrain is soft and true that you can't trust white women um because i mean just look at how the voting went in the last two elections look at how often um like all these videos about karen's popping up everywhere it's 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 not um a coincidence and it's not a myth white women will use their privilege to serve themselves first and foremost and they'll occasionally remember that other people are further down the line. Um, And I I think, you know, like we talk, we're talking mostly about film, but I also see it a lot in television, Um, like in Zoe's Extraordinary Plays, which is the show that I love. But there was one episode that really bothered me last year and it centered on the character Mo. And uh, my husband and I were watching it and I was like squirming and he was squirming and we're both like, Okay, did it just seem like a white savior kind of moment? And I'm like, yeah, it really did. Um, if you've watched the show, you know what I'm talking about. Um, but the sad thing is that I'm still going to say that I love the show and that I'm still going to recommend that people watch it. Because unfortunately, that's one of the least offensive things out there. And the particular moment, I, I, it's just, you know, there is no such thing as being able to find a show that does right by Black people that is not uh, created thoroughly by Black people. And there just isn't enough of that product particularly available um, without, like, a cable subscri- subscription or a subscription to some major premiere service that you can really rely on and and watch and just, you know, enjoy. So, um, yeah. Tiffany. I totally agree. I don't think it is going to end anytime soon when you have writer's rooms uh, that are dominated by white, hetero people, uh, particularly men. Uh, It just... It just won't because they write from their own point of view and their own point of view is generally very limited and doesn't um, have this inclusivity 
that black people, that native people, that Asian folks have in their daily lives. Um, generally speaking, that big moment in a movie is always centered around, even if it's uh, even if it's being told from kind of the black perspective at first, it's generally going to go to the white male in it. And I'm thinking of uh, hidden figures as kind of the main one in my mind. Um, here you are having these exceptionally brilliant black women who are pretty relegated to um, computational secretaries of sorts. Uh, and then when one is elevated to, um, to a much higher level, she's still marginalized in a way that is degrading, that is demeaning. And here comes Kevin Costner riding in on his white horse to knock down the, the white's own sign for the bathroom. Well, that didn't happen. It didn't happen at all. People that are knowledgeable about the situation that were there have stated unequivocally that that did not happen. So why did they feel the need to, to include that in there? What purpose did it serve? Well, it served the purpose to elevate this white man who was not necessarily a sidekick or side figure, but not as prevalent as the black women in the film. It served to elevate him. And Kevin Costner has had some others uh, looking at you dances with wolves uh, that have kind of um, suspended the realm of believability. Um, I'm also thinking about, I think one show that does skirt that trope is something like Pose. In the first season, there was, um, there are two white men in the first season, but they are very much pushed to the side. And there is no, uh, there is no white savior moment. Uh, they're almost like that. They're pretty villainous. Um, and they maintain that villainry till the end, till the end of that first season. And if you look at who's leading that show, creator and uh, the EP, it's Janet Mock, who is a black trans woman. And it's Stephen Canal, who is um, a uh, Afro-Latino, Afro-Latino. So, man, um, so it's, it's, it's not going to end. If anything, it's, um, it's going to increase as long as these academies and um, associations, you know, Hollywood Foreign Press, Association, as long as they keep giving these awards to them, they're going to keep getting made. Look at Green Book. That was ludicrous. It was absolutely ludicrous because the title doesn't have anything to do with the movie at all. It, for anybody that's wondering, Green Book was a title of a uh, almanac of sorts for Black people to use in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, and 60s 
because they were not able to be served at a lot of establishments, hotels, restaurants, gas stations. And the Green Book were a list of places that told them where they could go and be safe. So what does the movie Green Book have to do with Green Book? It has nothing to do with it. And it's told from this dude, this Italian guy who is racist, hello, viewpoint. And I know he's racist, even though I've never seen the movie. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of the reason, you know, you still see this is because white people are uncomfortable watching a movie where there isn't a good white person. So you have to good, put a good white person in there. Because if you show a good white person, then they'll be like, okay, it's okay. It's okay. We're not all bad. We're not all racist. We're not all horrible. There's a good, you know, there's Kevin Costner tearing down that restroom sign. You know, um, there's, um, you know, we've got Emma Stone's character that we're centering in the help. So we've got the good white woman who wants to tell the stories and she's a good person and she's not racist and she's standing up to things and she's also standing up to sexism and all that. So I I think that's a big reason these, this trope is still around and, sadly will probably still be around for a while to come Carla yeah and that goes back to the idea of black audiences not mattering and thinking that well you know they they, they're not the ones coming to see movies so you know it's not a a bankable idea anyway if you if we don't have white viewers showing up like as if movie audiences were primarily white, which is not the case. But it, it always comes down to, well, we didn't think it was going to be a um, a successful movie if we didn't do this. And that just couldn't be farther from the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And again, I've mentioned that skit with the white savior trailer that you can watch and see where, you know, you've got this black woman about to speak at a podium and the white guy comes and adjusts her microphone. He's like, I did it. I did it. Look what I did. Look what I did. <laughs> and it's really true. And all these other things he does throughout the whole thing um, is is really funny because it's it's something that, you know, but that also, also the other sad part about that is that people will call this out and make fun of it, but they'll still make the movies and they'll still go see the movies and they'll still green light the movies and they'll still get, you know, award recognition. Um, you had that same year with Green Book, you had, you know, Black Klansmen and you had If Beale Street Could Talk and you had all these amazing movies that really should have gotten more of the recognition than this one that played into that white savior trope or the redeeming the racist trope like that three billboards movie you know where you basically have to watch a white racist cop get redeemed i mean it's the same thing as well um yeah so i just wanted to briefly touch on that okay so i want to move on to just talking about any um black filmmaker writer even actor that you think right now is someone we should be paying attention to or someone that is making sort of a, a change to the landscape or getting more attention rightfully so, Carla? That's really... Oh, there, I feel like there are just a lot who really deserve recognition. Um, I'm going to stick with Issa Rae, and that's 
just because I, I've been following her since she had her her web series, um, the misadventures of a of an awkward black girl, and it's it's. I loved it so much because I, I really felt like it was speaking to me as an awkward human being. And um, it also served as a bonding point between uh, one of my sisters and me. So that's like a little side thing. But I, I think that she's she's a phenomenal thinker. Like she really has some really just, I don't know great ideas and i think that it's wonderful that she has uh more cloud and recognition right now than um that i think are very well deserved i think she really deserves all of this uh, recognition that she's getting um i love seeing her and anything because she has a really good balance between um comedy and drama she can do either very well um her show insecure is a fantastic show i really love it and i really love that in that show there are so many people so many black people working behind the scenes you have the lighting which has been talked about extensively uh because it's one of the first shows where they use lighting that is appropriate for dark-skinned black people or just black people in general where you, you know you're using uh, blues and reds and really highlighting the the skin tone and the features instead of trying to drown them out in lights that work for white actors and that that's one thing that just uh from the show coming into the landscape has been thought about more about you know lighting for black actors what a concept and you know how old is the art of filmmaking the art of photography and just now, it's being given real consideration in mainstream. Um, the the fact that you know uh, hair and makeup people are being considered for black actors instead of black actors having to show up with their makeup done or with their hair done themselves because the set didn't think to provide somebody who works with um, with black hair. Or with black skin tones. Uh, but, you know, either way, Issa Rae, she's great. I am going to go with actually somebody who has been in the game a long time, but we just got her feature film debut, and that was Regina King. Um, I have followed her since she was on 227 <laughs> as a teenager, uh, all the way through her career when she was um, in the early 90s. She was in Boys in the Hood. And then, of course, she did Jerry Maguire and she did Enemy of the State, which I think is a really underrated performance for her, um, playing opposite Will Smith, which is a really good performance for him as well. Um, but she has really come into her own, I think, over the last, let's say, probably decade or so. Um, American Crime Story, that anthology series that aired on ABC. Uh, about five, six years ago. She was excellent in that. She racked up any wins for that. Uh, then she did Watchmen uh, as well. Outstanding. Racked up an Emmy for that. <laughs> and then, um, of course, she won her Oscar for Bill Street Could Talk. Fantastic. Uh, she ran, she just ran the gamut. I think she ran the gauntlet um, during the award season for Bill Street Could Talk. 
And then you come to her Madness Opus, which is One Night in Miami. I can't speak enough about this film. It's something that lives in my mind rent free right now. Uh, her eye for detail with this and the, the cast is so, so good. Um, these are performances that could have overtaken the into, and I think we talked about this before, could have devolved into caricature, but she doesn't let it. She, uh, she reins it in when she needs to, and she lets it out <laughs> when she also needs to. So the direction is just on point. It's fantastic. Can't wait to see what she does next um, because I think she really has a pulse on what filmmaking should be. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that she's such a great actor herself. Um, it might not be, not everybody that acts can direct and not everybody that directs can act. But she has um, has really managed to to meld the two exceptionally well. So, Regina King. <laughs> oh, I didn't know everyone was going to mention just one because I'm like, I have like a list I was going to go over. Um, I do want to say we are going to do a special episode on Insecure since it's it's doing its last season. I have it on the schedule for later this year. It may change because you know I don't know yet what the schedule is like for the show, like when the show is going to end. So we'll definitely talk more about um, Issa Rae then too. So I just wanted to mention that really quickly. And yeah, Tiffany and I went on a tangent about one night in Miami (laughs) in our Viola Davis episode too. (laughs) Yes, it's, it's a, it's a really, really good one. And hopefully she will be receiving that Oscar nomination for best director. So Fingers crossed for that one. And I know we're going to, we have already, we already recorded our Black Panther episode. So we already did mention her, but I want to mention Nia DaCosta again, just because I just can't wait to see what she does with Candyman. And of course she's doing the next Captain Marvel movie. Um, I think sky's the limit for her. Um, She's just a really, really, really good director. And I, I'm really excited to see her take on a, on a horror movie. Um, because of course I'm a horror fan, so I just, I'm really excited to see Candyman and I really hope we actually get to see it in September. (laughs) Fingers crossed that actually really happens. Um, Barry Jenkins, I want to mention, um, not only for Moonlight, but for If Beale Street Could Talk, which is just a beautiful and heartbreaking film. Um, and the cast in that film, everybody is incredible, outstanding, there's so many incredible moments in that. The music, the score, everything about that is just, it's just a beautiful, beautiful film. He is so talented. And of course, Moonlight, we're going to do a whole episode talking about Moonlight in June um, for Pride Month. So that will be really good. And of course, the thing with Moonlight, to remember what unfortunately is so rare about a movie like that is there wasn't a single, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there wasn't a single white person in that whole entire movie. And that's pretty pretty remarkable um yeah so i so i think barry jenkins um sorry i have a whole list here and i'm like maybe i should just narrow it down but i really do (laughs) um gina prince bythewood of course who had a real big success with old guard but she's been around forever love and basketball which we talked about that this past summer we did a whole episode talking about that film so go check that out if you haven't especially since I delve into um, Alfre Woodard and how amazing she is in that movie. And the things she does with that character in that movie are just outstanding. 
Um, and I don't think it gets talked about enough what, you know, the little layers that she's putting in that character. And speaking of Alfre Woodard, she did a movie called Clemency, which I don't know if anybody else on the panel saw that. Uh, frankly, I think it was her best performance she's ever given. Um, but I just want to mention that again, just because I think she's really good in it, as is Eld- Aldous Hodge, who is also in One Night in Miami. <laughs> so mention him there. Jordan Peele, of course, which Jor- Jordan Peele is doing amazing things with horror. And I, of course, Get Out, which Carla and I did an episode talking about Get Out, which I think it's a really, really good episode. Um, I highly recommend listening to it, <laughs> not to just build up our stuff, but I think it was a really, really good discussion. <laughs> Lift it up. And then, um, of course, we are going to one day, we are going to have to talk about us at some point. I mean, just so many things you don't, don't even think about until you're really, really delving into it. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop there because, yeah, I was like, oh, wait. They're just mentioning one person. Did I say? <laughs> so I was like rushing. I'm like, who do I want to mention? I don't know. <laughs> I'm going to narrow it down to one. But yeah, I just wanted to end with just kind of that, just raising up some voices. And there are a lot of other voices out there. And of course, in TV, I mean, we did mention Issa Rae and Insecure. But with TV, that's another part. We didn't really even delve into that that much. But that's another area that needs a lot of improvement as well. So we want to lift up the voices. So just make sure to buy tickets, purchase things, stream things, live tweet things. That's, you know, where a lot of people get recognition for things. Share things. Tell people to see things. Don't just spend your money on the standard fare that you always see. Branch out, see other things because there is amazing art out there and it deserves to be seen and we deserve to see more of it. So Hollywood looks at money. So make your money count, you know, and don't just see white savior movies. So, okay. (laughs) We're going to go ahead and wrap up and I'll just have Carla and Tiffany tell us where they can be found and promote whatever they want to promote. Carla. I can be found along with Meg on our podcast, which is called Bed, Wet or Behead. And you can find us on Twitter at Bet Wed Behead Pod. And you can also find our podcast itself wherever cool podcasts get airtime. Um, you can find me at Carla Temis, that's C A R L A T E M I S. I just love that you keep saying wherever cool podcasts are found because it's true. I, <laughs> you know, I just want to make sure that they don't go where like the non cool podcasts are because that's not where we are. <laughs> We're only quality in class and sophistication. <laughs> yep. Um, and Tiffany. You can find me on Twitter at who is tip is me. That is at who is tip is me. And then I also write for the game of nerds while we're looking for writers. And that's the game of nerds across all platforms, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, reach out. Awesome. Thank you. And this is Erin. You can follow me on Twitter at EAprilBeauty. The E and the A and the B are capitalized. Be sure to like the show on Facebook at Facebook.com slash It's a Fandom Thing Pod. On Twitter at Fandom Thing Pod. No it's in that one. On Instagram at It's a Fandom Thing Pod. If you have any feedback, show notes, anything at all, feel free to email us at It's a Fandom Thing Pod at gmail.com.
And on our next episode, Carla and Tiffany will be back with me, and so will Tanya, to discuss the film Black Panther. We've already recorded this discussion, and I personally think it's one of our best discussions we've ever had. So look forward to that. So until next time, remember, it's a fandom thing, and Black Lives Matter. Thank you again for listening to It's a Fandom Thing. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on all your favorite podcast platforms. Our logo was designed by Brooke Belly with cover art by Carla Timmies. Additional research was done by Megan Archuleta. Our Instagram and Facebook content producer and creator is Erin Amos. And our producer is Lila Tafola. I'm your host, Erin Marlowe. And remember, keep that fandom spirit alive. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.